Welcome to today's dialogue with Connie Zweig, sometimes called Shadow Queen because she spent a lifetime studying and teaching about the hidden parts of our psyche and the ways in which it can erupt during spiritual practice and derail both spiritual teachers, students, and communities. She tells us how we can recognize it, heal it, and even turn shadow into light. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, author of the book Integral Recovery and founder of the movement of the same name, Integral Recovery, also CEO of iAwake Technologies, the company which makes soundtracks to support meditation and which supports this podcast. And our guest today is Connie Zweig, and it says a lot about how highly we hold Connie in esteem that she's our first ever return guest. And she's returning because she has recently done another book, a beautiful text, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. A beautiful title and a beautiful book. And Connie, this is not Connie's first book by any means. Connie is uh, the author of the best-selling work, uh, The Inner Work of Age, and she also authored a novel about the life of Rumi. And now she returns to a central theme through much of her work, exploring the shadow. And Connie, I've heard you described as the queen of (laughs) shadows. What brought you to this topic? Hi, Roger. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me back. Really eager for our conversation. So very early in my career in publishing, actually, before I became a psychologist, I put together a collection called Meeting the Shadow. And it happened to really strike a chord. People seemed to want to understand what was going on in the unconscious, why they were sabotaging their own intentions with self-destructive behaviors or repetitive patterns, repetitive choice, bad choices. Then when I went to grad school, I wanted to write my dissertation about spiritual longing. I had already been meditating for a long time, and I wanted to explore the psychology of spiritual yearning. And I found the poem by Goethe called The Holy Longing, and that became the subject of the dissertation, looking at what Freud and Jung and Wilbur and others had to say about our yearning for transcendence, for the divine. And then I wrote Romancing the Shadow, which was an offering of a method to work with unconscious material to take that sort of abstract, amorphous shadow content and form it into personal figures that we could begin to establish conscious relationships with so that that shadow material moved into our awareness and we could begin to do shadow work. 
so all of this was going on while I was in doing clinical work and doing my own psychological work and spiritual practice. And then I turned the dissertation into a book that was called The Holy Longing. And many years later, I did the inner work of age. And, you know, Roger, it's not a change of, of subject. It's very much about meeting the shadows of age, exploring the unconscious process, the denial, the self-hatred, the projections that go on as we age. So even though the title doesn't have that word in it, because the publisher didn't want that, it's still, you know, it carries this thread, which is my soul's mission, really. And then this publisher, who I've had a wonderful experience with, asked me for a revision of the holy longing. And so this will be now, I think it's the sixth book. It's very revised and updated from the earlier edition because um, so much has happened in the world of psychology and spirituality. So much has taken place. So I wanted to look at why it is, once again, that we meet darkness on the path, that we believe when we enter spiritual life, when we find a teacher, when we find a practice, that it will be all light and bliss, and easy rolling. And instead, what happens is, you know, we come up against our own issues. We come up against our unresolved problems and suffering. And we also come up against our teachers' unresolved problems, neuroses, complexes. We come up against community issues, group processes that create difficulties, challenges, suffering for us. And what is that about? And I really looked at the literature and tried to see who was writing about that. And nobody was really writing about it from a depth psychological point of view, which is to say, from the point of view of the unconscious, the shadow. So what are the shadows that we meet in our spiritual lives? How do we work with them? And how do we understand? How do we kind of come to understand with the maturation of our spiritual lives that the shadow is part of the journey. Yeah. And, and Connie, shadow has become somewhat of a, becoming a kind of more popular term for better and worse. And shadow, as it was originally formulated by Jung, was a very precise term. Now it's become often used to imply anything negative that arises. And so how, maybe you could say a little bit, a bit about how you're using it in this book. Yeah, that's important, Roger. That's really important so that we're all on the same page. So Jung coined the term shadow to mean those parts of us, feelings, behaviors, attitudes, that are outside of the boundaries of awareness. So the persona, or what we call the ego, is the conscious personality that we act out. But the ego develops because there are certain parts of us that don't develop in tandem. So let's say when we're growing up, we're not allowed to express anger. That All that charge, that energy goes into the shadow. We, we develop a polite, kind personality because that's what's rewarded with love. 
that's what's praised. But the negative traits that we think are, are in the shadow are only negative in relation to ego. So if, for example, it, we're growing up in a family that says athletics is a waste of time, you have to focus on academic achievement, but our gifts are athleticism, sports, some particular sport that we're really gifted at, and it's forbidden in our family, then that talent, or it could be artistic talent, is disdained. That talent goes into the shadow. And so all of our gifts that are unlived are in the shadow as well. And that was a step that Jung took away from Freud, where he recognized that the unconscious is not only about sexuality and aggression, anything can become unconscious as we develop from babies and children and teens into adults. And so, you know, as we age, many people who have a midlife crisis want to start living out some of the qualities that were buried and lost in the unconscious. And that's part of what midlife is about, right? It's about discovering the unlived life. And they're not all, quote, negative traits or feelings. Some of them might be sadness. Like my father used to tell me it made him unhappy if I was sad. And so I learned not to show that to him as a child. And so the full range of my emotional expression was limited by that adaptation. So now, I can express grief and sorrow and sadness about all kinds of things as part of my aliveness. Beautiful. And there's a key question that immediately comes to mind here, which is, why don't we recognize the shadow? And particularly for people, and many of our audience are involved in contemplative practices, the honing and refining of awareness, the training of attention bringing awareness and attention to levels which actually the psychological research shows is beyond what was thought possible. It's possible through meditation to develop incredible sensitivity of perception and introspection and acuity to the finest things. And yet, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> there are big parts of our psyche which don't show up. <laughs> How come? Well, by definition, the shadow is hidden, it's denied, it's forbidden, it's unwelcome, it's unacceptable by definition. And so even as we develop spiritually, even as we evolve and our consciousness expands, there, there is still shadow material locked into the body-mind. Locked in, you know, Freud and Jung didn't realize the body-mind connection. So they thought it was like some corner of the psyche in the brain. But it's actually the full body-mind contains material that's repressed in the muscles, in the nerves, you know, in the belly, in the throat. And so it's by definition outside of our awareness. And so if we are doing practices from traditions that don't include some kind of inner work to uncover that, 
or even more so actually forbid that, like let's say sexual feelings. So if we're in monastic traditions, sexual feelings are not encouraged and maybe they're even shamed. And so that material remains buried. It remains unconscious or aggression might re remain unconscious or anger because our- I'm sorry, Connie, but what is the danger then? We're talking about the kind of negative shadow and I want to get onto the unlived gifts too. So we're holding all this back, say we're the monk and we have these all these sexual longings and stuff and we just stuff that down. What is the danger? But then what happens? Well, I think that's really individual, John. It's hard to generalize. But if we look at the Catholic Church childhood sexual abuse scandal, how do we explain that hundreds, maybe thousands of priests who were celibate acted out in that way? How do we explain that? How do we understand that? What were the needs inside of that sexual enactment of abuse? What were the deep needs there around remaining celibate, or in some cases being gay and not being allowed to express that by the church. So that's kind of a dramatic collective example, but there are individual risks that in chapter five in the new book, I go through many, many dozens of stories with allegations of spiritual teachers from Eastern traditions who are acting out sexual violations, abuse of power, verbal abuse, emotional coercion, financial coercion. Why? Why is that happening? This is what I'm trying to understand. What is being repressed into the shadow that erupts in these ways that are so harmful? Even people who've taken vows to do no harm. Why is that happening? Because it's happening in epidemic proportions now. These are not isolated events. And we can talk about what are the risks for seekers or believers or students, and what are the risks for teachers and clergy as well. You know, because there's a climate right now in which the shadow is erupting in our culture and the headlines, we see it every day in the political, I mean, the whole Trump drama has kept it in our faces, right? But it's not so much in the headlines in the spiritual domain. And yet it's there in great numbers. In your book, you call it the eruption of the shadow going on right now, which I thought was very well said and, and tragically true. Yeah. But, but I wonder, is Connie, it seemed like there was an implication in what you just said that, that there, in, in the word eruption, that there was something new here, and I wonder if these aren't perennial issues. I don't think it's new. I think what's new is that we're seeing it so widely because of social media, because of the loss of privacy, because of more people's capacity to speak out since the Me Too movement. I think we're seeing it more in Hollywood, in politics, in Congress, you know, but I really hadn't seen much written about the spiritual arena and this topic. And so I'm kind of wanting to translate this, you know, language of the headlines 
into our most sacred world, our world of spirit. And also to do it in considerably greater depth because the headlines are sensationalistic and and usually very superficial. And the gift of your book is that you have both your deep, long-term spiritual practice and contemplative reflection, plus your deep psychological, particularly Jungian, training and reflection and practice. I want to make sure we don't lose something here because I was particularly wanting to, I asked about why don't we recognize our own shadow and and you gave some some responses, but there's one thing you didn't mention. I know you know this, but it seems so important. I want to I want to bring it up for you to comment on, and that is the unconscious is is really unconscious. And it is one of the things I find most striking in comparing the contempt world's contemplative traditions with their thousands of years of profound investigation and and nurturing of the psyche and our potentials, etc. Yet nowhere do you find an account of what we now call psychodynamics and psychological defense mechanisms. That is, they don't show up to introspection, but they do show up very clearly in our interpersonal relationships, which is why the psychotherapy emerged and particularly began flourishing with Freud's recognition of psychological defenses and mapping of those. And and it's interesting they can you know there's they're clear it's much easier to see other people's <laughs> defenses than it is our own and actually you know 2000 years ago jesus said why don't you see the log or the beam of wood in your in your own eye when you see your, the splinter in your brothers so clearly well we can answer him now psychological defenses yes yes well there, as you know, you know, as one of the founders of transpersonal psychology, Roger, there has been this split between the psychological world and the spiritual world. And they've only come together in recent decades with ATP and Integral. So most of the ancient teachings don't include what we would call psychodynamics. I think that there are some perhaps insights into what we would now call the psyche in some of the wisdom teachings. You probably know better than I do where they lie. Certainly Buddhism has insight into how the mind works and how it protects itself. I think that there are insights about that in the Vedas, but they're not, they don't explain projection. They don't explain repression, right? They don't explain denial. The basic things that we take for granted now in understanding ourselves. And I would say in response to your comment about they're not available for self-reflection, those those defenses, there are ways to work with the unconscious, such as dream work. So what started me on the path of exploring the shadow was a dream that I had when I was in Jungian analysis and talking with this analyst for weeks about this dream about my shadow. And it opened a universe to me that I knew nothing about. So there are ways now of finding access to the deeper unconscious that we are now privileged to just as we're privileged to all of the 
spiritual practices that weren't available before. So we kind of live in this moment where that's all open to us now. Yeah, I wanted to maybe Roger, you, you know, I'm honored to be here with both of you. <laughs> so much to give. But perhaps this a lack of introspection that we see throughout in the Christianity, you know, we said it was demons and devils, and we gave it a you know an exterior force of being attacked and exorcisms to get these parts out. But you think it may be developmental. In other words, human beings have to get to a certain developmental level before they can really begin the task of introspection. And you may not see the shadow, but you start to see clues. You know, why do I get so angry when this happens? Why am I attracted sexually to this? That's so weird. Or, you know, why do I want to be violent or steal? Or why am I attracted to just hurtful behaviors? And perhaps it's because more of us are arriving this part of part of the picture here at the, these these developmental levels that hadn't been available to most of us for a long, long time. That now we can begin to see it, and I think being confronted with the worldwide shadow because of our you know our internet and all the stuff, perhaps those two forces start bringing it out in us individually. Yeah, and some of that development is due to how many people have been doing psychotherapy and psychological inner work as well as spiritual inner work. So we start to see it in the results of our behavior. We start to, we start to cultivate self-observation. I think that's what you're saying. We start to see the results of our actions, whether we hurt ourselves or hurt someone else, whether we have a compulsion that's hurting ourselves or we have a, an addiction or we have some kind of repeating pattern of always getting in destructive relationships, as an example. And that self-observation is the beginning. It's the beginning of asking the question, who is doing that? You know, who in me or what in me is making that happen? And that sort of turns the arrow inward rather than outward in blame and projection. And that's a huge developmental step. I think, unfortunately, most of humanity is lost in projection and not turning inward yet. But I do agree with you that there are certain portions of the population that are doing that developmentally, and that that's a giant leap. It's a giant leap for humanity. A large part of your book is about this book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, is about the way the shadow manifests, the way it sidetracks us, and the ways we can recognize it. But you also point to ways we can protect ourselves against it. And I'd love to, that's, a, that's obviously a crucial question. How do you mean, Roger? Protect ourselves internally? or It's an open question. I'm thinking, how can we protect ourselves against our expression of it? I'm thinking both individually and in groups and in our role, the various professional roles, and particularly in the spirit, roles of spiritual teachers. Okay. So it's funny. I didn't, the question didn't compute because the word protect doesn't come up for mm -hmm. me. I don't frame it that way. So that's interesting. So, you know, this book is a call for spiritual awakening. 
It's a call for commitment to and deepening of our practices. But it's also a call to shadow awareness. And for me, shadow awareness is a relative kind of waking up. It's becoming aware of those parts of ourselves that we're discussing right now that have been outside of our awareness, but have been sabotaging our conscious desires or hurting people we love or harming ourselves in some way. How do we become aware of those shadows? And then how do we become aware of the shadows in others? So shadow awareness includes recognizing our projections. So we tend to think about projections as negative, right? We project, oh, she's so lazy, she doesn't get off the couch. Or he's so angry, he's always mean, right? We tend to imagine that we're projecting negative traits when we think about projection. But we can also project the light, spirituality, spiritual essence, whatever we call it, Buddha nature, Christ nature. We can also project that onto other people in the attempt to make a human being divine and therefore worthy of our idealization. And so as we idealize charismatic leaders, there's a dynamic that starts to happen. And it's very tricky to talk about this with people who are in, you know, devotional teacher-disciple relationships or clergy, people who are in discipleships with clergy who are believed to be ordained by God. I mean, this is a very tricky thing to talk about, right? So the book is about what is it in us that wants to make a human divine? Because every human, as we were saying, still has shadow, still has flaws, unconscious material, needs, unhealed wounds, and those parts of the teacher or clergy person may erupt, to use that word, John, may act out in ways that are tricky or hurtful or risky or difficult. So the psychodynamics of that relationship are similar to the therapist-client relationship in the sense that we may psychodynamically, you know, if we were Freudian, we might say that we are projecting or unconsciously attributing to the teacher a parental nature. This is the father I never had. He's safe. He's unconditionally loving. He'll never hurt me. And that child part of us attributes to that teacher, a male in this case, that unconditional father. And then what happens when some aspect of that teacher violates that projection? Either the projection pops, the student sees through it and says, okay, I gotta rethink this. Do I separate from the teacher and leave the community? Do I speak up and try to get the systems to change here? 
Or do I just accept? Do I stay silent and just accept? Surrender. Most important thing is my surrender, not my ego. So I'm going to stay and suck it up. And if he's doing that and he's perfect, then it must be right. If he's abusing that young woman, she must deserve it. It's her karma. And so all these spiritual rationalizations start to arise. Why? To keep that projection intact. To keep that father-child dynamic going and safe. And so the mind makes up all sorts of stuff about it to rewrite it. And then Jung went beyond Freud here and said, there's an archetypal projection. It's not only the parent we're projecting, it's the God. We're attributing a godlike power to that person. And that's why that person seems to have impunity, seems to be able to do anything and be untouched by it. And there's a lot of this going on with Trump acolytes. Oh, boy. Yeah, right? But, but Connie, I have a, a pressing question. I'm sorry you're in such a zone, but I want to kind of go back to that. It, we, we see this dynamic a lot. I, I was in a cult when I was a teenager. Okay? I, I, I really get that. But what does it say about the person that is the object of these projections and realizes it? And you, you very clearly, you said in your book, that, and this is a super important point, I, I, I think, is that a person can be at whatever ever level of spiritual development and still be a sociopath. So maybe there's A and B, that question. What does it say about the person who's accepting these projections and taking it to the bank, so to speak, or fulfilling their desires? And what do you mean? You're enlightened, you get non-duality and all of this, and there's no compassion, you're still a sociopath? Okay. You know, this is huge. So the risk goes both ways, right? So I was describing the risk to the student or believer or practitioner. There's also a risk to the teacher or clergy person. I mean, imagine being someone who has millions of followers who have blind faith in you either because of your birth into a lineage or because of some demonstration of powers or because of your claim for a certain level of awakening. So all of these people, and it could be around the world, you know, could be local focused on, or it could be non-local around the world. And they're all projecting onto you that you're perfect, that you're flawless, that you're X, Y, Z. And I would say that the traits that they're projecting arise from their own needs, from what the ideal parent, teacher, God is to them, right? That's what they're projecting. That's what they're giving away. So imagine being the recipient of that. So you come to believe and in some cases, the scriptures say you reach this stage of awareness, you can do no wrong because you're not the doer anymore. And all those moral, ethical rules don't apply anymore because they're just concepts. They're empty. And so you're free. You can do what you want. And the people believe 
you can walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, <laughs> right? Because you're immune to the consequences that everybody else is subject to. And so what happens if you're in that position? And let's say maybe you've had some date experience of awakening. Or maybe you haven't and you're just, you know, you're just fooling the whole thing is a lie. But maybe you have. And then it passed. But you still, you think that's who I am. I don't have to do any more inner work because I've already attained what I was looking for, right? So what happens then to the psychological wounds that remain? Maybe it's a personality disorder, like you said. We see so much narcissism among spiritual teachers, and it like hurts me to say that. But if we look at the definition of narcissism, we see it everywhere in spiritual communities. Connie, I wanna I wanna push you to be precise, because I would I would disagree. We don't see it everywhere, but we see it too much. We see it too much. Thank you. That's fine. That's fine. I don't mean to smear everybody with the same statement. Good. Okay, so we see it too much, but I'm asking why? Because what one reason we could say is because of spiritual bypass, right? The psychological work has not been completed, although some spiritual state was attained, maybe for a moment, maybe for three years. Okay, that's one reason. Another reason is there's shadow material. You know, Ken Wilber made this great point in religions of tomorrow, that there's shadow material in every chakra. So you can have very high states and still have shadow material in your sexual chakra. Maybe you are a teacher who comes from an Eastern tradition where monasticism was at play, you come from a monastery or you you were taught that you know because of your birth you're so special and you're above everyone else or whatever the historical explanation that teacher still has some sexual we could call it karma or injury or shadow material whatever we call it and comes to the west and all these women are half dressed and liberated and you know, free and want to be dancing and blissed out. And so he's tempted. So, you know, and again, Roger, you're right, it's not everybody, but there's a lot of disappointing reports about teachers acting out in ways that are very unconscious. And do you think that the teachers begin, they kind of know it's BS. But at a certain point, you get all this energy focused on you and you begin to believe your own BS. You know, you begin to believe your own propaganda. You're, well, maybe I am perfect. And I want to, I you know, have sex with that young woman because, well, she needs me to transmit, you know, this great awareness that everybody says I have. And I'm, pretty, I'm pretty smart. I am. So maybe everything I do is just teaching them. And so I just need to let this spirit of my wonderfulness come through me and do what I do. Yeah, so there are all kinds of self-explanations for the behavior. You know, I can transmit my kundalini through sex and wake you up. 
you know, that was a common one for a while. Or if you don't give me sex, you know, your family is going to go to hell and or, or be reincarnated in a bad lifetime or whatever. So these stories start to get come around the abuse to rationalize it and to control people. And they swear it's secrecy too. You can't tell anybody because this is our special God-given gift. There's a whole, a whole. And the secrecy is the glue that holds it all together in the community. People don't want to tell on each other and don't want to lose their special relationship to the special teacher. Yeah. And you implied something there, Connie, and you too, John, that there are certain aspects or characteristics of groups and teachers that are most likely to get into trouble. And we probably should mention, along with your book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path is an excellent one that Ken Wilber and others edited on spiritual choices, in which they examined the characteristics of spiritual groups, which either protected or led led to problems. And one directly relates to what both of you were talking about, which is the difference between, for example, what they call charismatic and technical leaders and groups. Charismatic, the in which the idea was that the benefit came from the teacher, from being with in the company of the transmission of the teacher, versus technical the oriented groups where the benefits came from a practice, from training one's heart, mind, and cultivating one's character, etc. And not surprisingly, the charismatic groups are much more likely to run run awry than the technical ones. So those are some characteristics. Really good point. Yes. Yes, really good point. So the question there that I hear is, when does a community become cult-like? What leads a spiritual or religious community to become cult-like? And I don't mean become a cult in the classical sense, but to become cult-like, where everyone has to think the same way, feel the same way. I remember when I started meditating in my early 20s, and someone said to me, why do you always have this silly smile on your face? And I realized I was developing a spiritual persona. And it kind of reinforced that story I got from my father about not showing any sadness, right? It fit right in. I was wanting to be blissed out. And so I was looking like I was blissed out. It was very unconscious. I didn't know that was happening. So when does a group begin to reinforce certain subtle dynamics so much that people begin to lose their critical thinking? Yes. And their agency. And there have been some research on this, some studies, and you've already pointed to one of the things, which is secrecy, which is a key thing. So that's certainly one of the characteristics. Dominator hierarchies are clearly clearly an- another, and the belief in, fallib- in infallibility is another, and the belief in the, the importance of the work we are doing and we are s- chosen to do, etc., Privilege, along with uh, my late wife Frances, being in a that led to was doing research on cults and the led to the workbook spiritual choices. And what struck me was as we interviewed people from various cults was first off, I could no longer pretend that this couldn't happen to me. Some of these people were really smart. Some of them were psychologists. Some of them were even depth psychologists, and yet they fell for it. 
So there's no way I could pretend I couldn't. But the three things which really struck me was that first, the real danger signs was one, we are doing uniquely important work and therefore whatever we do, it's we can justify it. The second was the first ethical misstep, the second one comes so much more easily. <laughs> and and uh, let's see, what was the third? I'm, <laughs> I'm forgetting the third third thing that really really struck me. But those those two were those two certainly remain in my memory. So there's certain certain characteristics of groups. Uh, yeah, go ahead, John. Sorry. I'm glad that you said, you know, not every spiritual teacher is like that's a very important point and we have our, our next talk is going to be our second talk with uh, Hamid H-A-H Almas and I've known people that have been in the diamond approach for decades and I never after I joined one call I never joined well I joined the army but anyway after that I didn't join much <laughs> and I've watched the way even in his small groups he always has two teachers there so they can kind of keep each other in check you know as a safety mechanism and and I've got like major cult dar right from my early experience. I can sense it out, but I really think this guy's the real deal. He's so so brilliant, so unself glorifying. You know, it's just it's it comes through in this beautiful vehicle. He's just he's just a down to earth, very gifted guy. And anyway, it's it's been healing for me to be to be just you know uh, hanging out with these people. You know, John. Hamid is really rooted in psychology. I mean, he has really bridged psychodynamics and different spiritual traditions in a way that most of the teachers haven't. And I think that gives him a ground, a groundedness in the dynamics that is different from people who aren't educated in that way. Well, there are people who are and are still cult leaders, and they know all that stuff. They just yeah, that's true. They have inflation, you know. Yeah, that's true. Look at that Nixium guy. He was really using psychology. Keith Ranieri. Yeah, that's true. Tony, you pointed to something which we which you didn't flesh out. I'd love to have you go back to it. And that is, you're talking about you're making a very important point that all of us have shadows and probably have shadows, no matter how much work we do of every kind, psychological, spiritual, et cetera, et cetera. They're always, you know, the psyche is seems to be boundless and there seem to be, seems to be no end to the ways it can hide from itself. But you also mention, you also emphasize that the dangers of acting out our shadow material go up when we're in positions of power. And you kind of pointed to but I'd love to hear you speak more to the uh, the particular traps that come with some spiritual traditions, whether I think particularly of the tantric traditions, and tantra is a lot more than sexuality, which is what Westerners tend to associate it with. It's a very powerful and, and uh, profound set of traditions. But in some traditions, the there's a deliberate practice of seeing the guru as as a as a profoundly awakened person and using that as as a practice so which which is easy in a, easy in the current climate for us to completely dismiss yet for centuries it's been valued as a spiritual practice 
What do you reflect on this? You know, it's really complex. And I don't want to come across as a black and white thinker here, in which I'm saying all teacher-student relationships are bad. That's not what I'm saying. And I want to say that one of the things I really value about your book, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, is you are not doing a black and white thing. You are very nuanced and very open to multiple perspectives. I think it's one of the great strengths of the book. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, always leave your teacher, get out of there and go back to normal which is what the anti-cult people are saying, right? So I'm not encouraging people to go back to normal. I, whatever that well, is. Normal is probably not the right word here, but still. Well, you know, go to the back conventional. to the conventional. Thank you. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I really believe that there are times in each of our lives when we need guides, external and internal guides. And if the guide appears in the form of a human teacher and that serves us for a certain period of time and the practices involve guru worship or idealization or visualization practices of internalizing that person or internalizing inner gods and goddesses, then that's what this that moment is about for you and if in that situation the shadow shows up then that's part of the path and if it doesn't show up and that kind of works developmentally in a continuing way then that's right then that's okay and i would add cultivate shadow awareness so that you can reduce the risk for everyone involved, you can, and what do I mean by that? So some of us get information through our bodies. We get bodily cues about something's off, you know, in my stomach. Some of us get intuitions, a sense that there's danger or someone's not telling the truth. Some of us have internal dialogue it might come in the form of a doubt or a question. Maybe it's a forbidden question. Oh, I can't ask that. It's too dangerous. So I would suggest that we pay attention to those cues because they're coming from a deeper level than the rational mind. They're coming from a deeper level than conscious awareness with messages about the circumstance that we're in and the people we're with. So for me, you know, I started Transcendental Meditation at 19 for no holy reason, really, but because I wanted to date a guy in Berkeley who wouldn't date me if I didn't meditate. And it changed my whole life. <laughs> God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> it, right? And I entered that meditation community very naive and kind of wide open. But my nature is not devotional. And for me, it wasn't about Maharishi. It was about the practice. 
like the, this distinction that you just made, Roger. And I stayed and I watched and I learned how to be a teacher. And after about 10 years, alarms started going off. And I buried them for a while. I took the doubt and I repressed it. I took the perceptions of, you know, my sense that people were lying about their spiritual experiences to get advanced practices. And I stuffed it. And after a while, I couldn't stuff it anymore. And at, so for after a decade, I left the TM community and I was bereft. I lost all my friends. They wouldn't speak to me. I lost my meaning and my practice and my teacher and everything. And that in some way is the root experience of this book. Because I know that there are millions of people with that experience, whether in a synagogue or a church or you know, an Eastern tradition with a teacher, those red flags are hard to pay attention to when you're so invested in a belief system and a teacher and a community. Now, the good news is it led me to all kinds of other wonderful teachers and practices. It didn't shut me down and turn me off, which is what happens to so many people. So the book is about, you know, for people who have been disillusioned like that in some way, whatever the context, if you've been disillusioned, if you feel like you've lost faith, if you feel like you've been religiously abused or spiritually abused, this is how to rekindle your inspiration. It's not how to give up and be a rational, conventional person. That's not what I'm saying. And go back to normal, as I said. It's about how to bring shadow awareness to your spiritual life to enhance it. And, and Connie, how long, how long did it take you when you left your community to kind of, I don't know, get over the grief and, and the sense of, you know, I don't know, betrayal or blaming yourself or a lot of the stuff that happens. Was that a, a gradual process? Did it take six months, a year? Um, when you went, okay, I, I, I see what happened, but now I'm, I'm firmly back on the path and the stuff that I wanted originally is, is revealing itself to me in, in new ways, perhaps. And what did you do to help that happen? Well, Again, these are really individual stories. So the way that it unfolded for me may be really different than how it unfolds for other people, right? So for me, Roger, I think you know this. I read The Aquarian Conspiracy. I was living alone. I was really didn't have friends because I lost them. I was very disoriented. I read this book, The Aquarian Conspiracy, in 1981. That was sort of the first big book about the New Age by Marilyn Ferguson. And I did something that I had never, ever done in my life. I picked up the phone and called the author. And she said, oh, my God, my editor just left. I don't care who you are. This is synchronicity. Come in. I want to give you a job. And she became my writing mentor and opened up. Uh, another career for me. So, you know, it's a kind of 
The individual details may not be repeated in other people's lives, but the pattern of letting go, really taking the risk of stepping into the liminality and the uncertainty and the not knowing what's next and trusting life that something will show up for you. It's like leaving a marriage or leaving anything that you know you're at the end of, that you know isn't feeding you, and you're hanging on because you don't know what else there is, and letting go and stepping into that liminal space. And my writing mentor showed up and completely changed my life. So, you know, and and she used to make fun of me and call me the yogi and all this stuff. And tease me about it. But I stayed with meditation. I found other meditation practices. I stayed with them. For me, they weren't guru-centered because that's just not my way. I have had teachers, but not a devotional relationship like other people do. So I think what I'm trying to say with the book is that we need to hold both. We need to follow that yearning. For, for transcendence beyond the ego. We need to follow that. We need to hear that whisper and let it guide us. And at the same time, we need to beware and remember that there are dark nights on this journey. And it's a part of that for everyone. These dark nights are part of the path. It doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean you're off the path when you meet the shadow. It means that something else is required of you. Some other task is required of you at that moment. And maybe it's to meditate and do psychological work. Maybe it's to stop your spiritual practice for a while and reconnect with some emotional work or moral development or creative development. Again, this is really individual, but it's... Um, the, my, you know, the message is that we continue to expect teachers to be infallible, and we continue to expect that our spiritual paths will not lead us to suffering, and they often do. Well, there's a lot in what you just said. I want to name some of the things just to make sure they're, they're emphasized sufficiently. One was self-trust. The things you're talking about, the steps you're talking about, the listening to those questions and doubts, and even greater, the willingness to step away from a community, etc., requires an enormous amount of self-trust. And the, unfortunately, pathological communities don't foster self-trust. They tend to undermine it. So self-trust is crucial. And I would say for myself, on the oh, one of the most recurrent recognitions has been, oh, I can trust the mind. I can trust myself. And just that's absolutely crucial. Second, you made the point that encountering suffering is inevitable in any growth process. And the idea that any growth is simply going to lead to greater and greater light is just one of the real traps and mythologizing of uh, different teachings. I mean, and, you know. I think of classic Buddhist text, so-and-so heard the teachings, went into the forest, meditated, got enlightened. It's like boy meets girl, ride off to the sunset, live happily ever after. You know, if you've ever been in a relationship, you know something is missing from this story. So 
challenges. There are inevitably going to be challenges. You made the point, not in detail, but you pointed to the, the fact, you know, teachers are human too. And I would say one of the danger signs is perfect teacher. <laughs> there are no perfect teachers. There are just human beings who teach. And then you, the last thing you pointed to was feeling into what is asked of us in each situation, in each moment, in each life phase. Really important. Really important. Yeah, so beautiful. A lot of great points there. So let's talk about awakening. Stay with Connie Zweig for part two as she explores the way in which we can learn from the shadow, transform it, and ourselves. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.